As I said earlier, this Sunday is Christ the King Sunday, which is the final week in the church's calendar year. Next Sunday begins the season of Advent and uh, the beginning of a new year for Christ's followers. Uh, today, Christ the King Sunday celebrates the kingship of Jesus Christ. Uh, here we remember that Christ leads us as our king in a way, as we look through the story, that radically differs from the way other earthly kings and other earthly authorities rule. When one thinks of authority, one normally thinks of the exercising of power or strength, which can often become coercion and or domination. But in the kingdom in which Christ is king, authority is centered around the incarnation, around the idea of God moving toward us where we are, where we live, what we've experienced. In the kingdom where Christ is king, authority is centered around forgiveness, about letting go the things and the ways in which we have been unfaithful and God making all things new. It's about selfless love, where God gives himself, and through that giving, there's a kind of power that's expressed. But it's not a coercive or a dominating kind. It's a respecting and loving kind. When we talk about God being almighty or God being king, <laughs> I grew up, I don't know what it was, was some sort of an image that that meant God got his own way, right? And I remember these old chick tracks. I don't know if some of you may remember that. I have one of the images here where you see on the left where God is depicted as huge and pointing to problems. <laughs> and look at the guy down on the bottom freaking out, the little figure down there. Yeah, that was me. So somehow these kinds of images um, always projected that God was just a little mad at everybody, right? Um, it was actually during the Middle Ages, or the Dark Ages, as they're often called, that the Roman church um, began to propagate the notion that God was in some way mad at humanity and that his anger needed to be satisfied. And this led to the idea that Jesus came to the world to die in order to receive or to bear God's wrath for sinful humanity. Are you familiar with this line, of this kind of thinking? Okay. On this view, Jesus becomes the substitutionary sacrifice for us. We needed to be punished for our sins. So Jesus steps in our place and is punished in our stead for the sin of humanity as a whole, sometimes referred to as the penal substitutionary sacrifice. Here's a couple of things you should know about this. Number one is this view was not found in early theology. This was emerged within the Middle Ages. Early church fathers would have not recognized this. But secondly, what's so important is there were other views <laughs> of what was going on. And another view, which is more central, and I really like it, <laughs> is, was that Jesus came as God into the world in order to move toward our pain and brokenness because of love and because God's power is most clearly seen in God's longing to save and longing to care for his creation is why Jesus came. On this view, God the Father is not threatening to destroy humanity and Jesus just takes the kill instead. 
That's not how it's positioned. On this view, the creator becomes the created because creation is loved by God. And on this view, Almighty God shows God's almightiness by becoming one of us and by entering into all that becoming human in a fallen world constitutes. <laughs> really a nice story. This is the view described by Paul in Philippians 2, where he says to us, in your relationship with one another, keep this mindset that was in Christ Jesus. Watch Christ's mindset. Who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. The idea in Greek is, uh, the word is kenosis. It's this emptying. He made himself nothing. And by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Paul's talking about this incredible move of Jesus, who was in, who was God who didn't lock into God for some self-advantage, but he, by the fact that he was God is pushing himself into the domain of human life and experiencing all the pain, even all the way to death on a cross. When we think of Jesus self-emptying, it would be a mistake to think that he was emptying himself of his godness as he was going to the cross. He was emptying himself of anything selfish. He was not using his godness for his own advantage, which is what most kings do. This text suggests that Jesus was showing us God's sovereignty by naturally moving towards acts of selflessness. That this is the best view of God, that God is not for God's self. Jesus is acting for the Father here. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And then in Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the exact representation of God's being. In other words, whatever Jesus does is what God does. <laughs> when we see Jesus moving toward the cross, it was not him leaving his God nature, but it was his God nature that pushed him there. This would mean the cross was an act of sovereignty, not an act of weakness. This means that God is mostly God when he or she, really you can't call God either. I know that offends some, but God is not a man and God is not a woman. When God shows acts of power, but that's not when God's being mostly God, but God's being mostly God when God moves toward suffering, pain, and vulnerability. <laughs> it's so upside down for us. What if God going to the vulnerable place of the cross was as powerful as God creating the universe? Christ the King is almighty, but he's also the vulnerable one. Think of the two places the world is most familiar with Jesus around the world. Two places. A baby in a manger who can't care for itself. And the person nailed on a cross 
they're nailed. They're not in control. And these two places of vulnerability are the biggest, greatest images the world has about Jesus Christ. Not the resurrection, not his coming, but as a baby and on the tree. That's where God goes to places of powerlessness. What is tucked in the theological kind of view behind the place of the cross where our gospel speaks from is the idea that evil somehow is vanquished when God becomes vulnerable. Not by resisting evil, not by fighting it, not by conquering it open, but by simply exhausting it by seeming to let it run its course against God, it somehow exhausts the evil. We're told in 1 Corinthians 2, we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Talking about, he's talking about powers of darkness. They're coming to nothing. One day they will be nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God has destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood this mystery because if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There was something about the crucifixion that overturned the power of evil. There was something about the crucifixion that made darkness run its course so that it would not have power over us. That even the power of death was lost as Jesus dies. A good analogy, I think, that's natural and certainly not full enough because no analogy is full enough. But um, I, I think a good analogy of this is like uh, of evil and how God dealt with evil is, is when you try to deal with a freaked out flailing toddler. We, we've, we've, we've been down the road on this several times, Gil and I. <laughs> what do you do when you have a freaked out, yelling, flailing toddler who is hungry, hasn't had a nap, or is just demon-possessed? <laughs> you can reason, it doesn't work. You can argue, it doesn't work. You can try to force the child to do something else, it doesn't work. So what's the best strategy? While they're freaking out and yelling and screaming, is just hold them. And even if there's kind of moving around and it's hard to hold. You just hold them until they wear themselves out. See, flailing humanity killed Jesus. But through the almighty power resident in Jesus, he held on during the process. And somewhere, it's exhausted. What if it took more power to stay on the cross and die than to get off it with power demonstrated. We, if you remember, at one point on his way there, Jesus said to those around him, quote, do you think I cannot call on my father and that he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels and we just stop this gig? At any point, Jesus could have said, Father, <laughs> change the story. So maybe it was, that was a less powerful act than actually submitting to it and letting evil have its way. Getting out of the cross thing would have been easy peasy compared to getting crucified. Getting crucified demanded power. Here's what is interesting. On Christ the King Sunday, 
we don't go to the resurrection passages. We don't go to the passage in Revelation where Jesus Christ comes back. Listen to this one. It seems like this would be a great crisis king passage. This is Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe, dripped, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Seems like this would be a really great King Christ the King Sunday text. But what's chosen for this day? It's the narrative of Jesus hanging on the tree. There's something very powerful about places of weakness in the economy of God. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul makes a statement, therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was, because of these revelations he had, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Well, thank you very much. Right? Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about the places that make me weak so that Christ's power may be there, resting on me. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight when life doesn't go well, when I have weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. Why? Because I found this out when I am weak then I am strong. What if bringing the power of Christ the King into our lives is about moving toward weakness? Toward the sick? Toward the poor? Toward the hurting? Toward the addicted? Toward the broken? Toward those in trouble? Toward our irritating coworkers? toward the really difficult relative that you dread seeing this week at Thanksgiving. Peter comments on the cross and he says this, this is 1 Peter 2, to this you were called. This is why you're called. Because Christ suffered for you. I wish he said, so that Christ suffered for you so you won't have to suffer. But he doesn't say that. He says, so because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you too are supposed to suffer. This is your calling. This sucks on some level. You're called to suffer. That you should follow his steps. He committed no sin. In other words, there's nothing, he didn't deserve what happened. Oftentimes, neither do you. And no deceit was found in his mouth. He was innocent. And often, so are you but they hurled their insults at him. And when they hurled insults, it says he did not retaliate, which is so strange because when people insult me, I want to retaliate. 
It's, it's that impulse, right? But he didn't. Takes a lot of power to not retaliate. Divine power to turn the other cheek and respond from a place that isn't stinging from a slap. When he suffered, he made no threats. Oh my gosh. When I suffer, I only threat. Stop it or else. But he makes no threats. It takes power to suffer and not make threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. In other words, the reason he didn't react is because he looked to God. That's what that turn the cheek thing's all about. When you're slapped, turn the other cheek. In other words, you look to another place. You're not reacting out of your pain. You're not reacting out of the humiliation of the slap. You turn from a place that isn't hurting, but also to another place, another source. God himself. This isn't normal. This requires something more. And then we go to our text in Luke 23, Christ the King Sunday. And we go straight to this place that is called the skull. I mean, he's found immediately in the creepy place, the place called the skull. And Jesus is being crucified, naked, humiliating and it says that he was crucified there with the criminals. So he's being numbered with the criminals. And But watch where Jesus' mind goes in this text. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ. Watch where his mind goes. I mean, this is, this is in the midst of his betrayal, his being betrayed. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's been whipped. He has had his beard pulled out by soldiers. He's had... Fists of violent soldiers pounding into his face. He's had thorns driven with rods hitting on the top of his head with these long thorns from, from the trees in, in Israel. He's been spat on, cursed, nailed to a cross, mocked the whole time he was there. And where does Jesus go? Where it says, it just says they crucified him with the criminals, the one on his right, one on his left, and watch where he goes, the next verse. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. How do you go there? That's where God goes. And if you live under God's power, that's where you go. This isn't weakness. This is sovereignty. They don't know what they're doing. I used to think that God being sovereign meant God was full of control of everything, including the quashing of anyone who went against him. But what if sovereignty is more about the ability to suffer without retaliating? What if Christ the King in our lives means that we have the power to be impervious to rejection and abuse and threat? And that our calling is precisely for God to be able to put us next to the worst of the worst. To be hung between the criminals, those that are broken. And to somehow work it out so that we live in a way that they look at us and say, will you remember me when you come into the kingdom? 
we can say today, your life is starting to move toward paradise. Peter claims this is what we're called to do as believers. That's why he said it. To this you were called, 1 Peter 2, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. He committed no sin, no deceit was in his mouth. When he hurled, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate when he suffered. He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And then Peter makes this crazy assertion. The very next verse, he himself bore our sins, our rejection, our insults, our cruelty in his own body on the cross. Why? So that something might happen to us, the ones who are insulting, the ones who are persecuting, the ones who are abandoning, the ones who are, who are tormenting, persecuting, that somehow we might die to that impulse and live for right. Somehow when he receives it without retaliating, it opens the door for it to be pulled out of us. Somehow because we're the ones persecuting him when he doesn't react and he entrusts God that somehow our persecuting impulse is exhausted and it falls out of us. And God can bring right. For you were like, he says, by his wounds, <laughs> You get healed. The wounds you gave him. Because he doesn't react. The person wounding gets healed. What if God is seeding us in the world so that we're by people who wound and instead of reacting to them and demanding our rights, we somehow learn to live in the sovereignty of God and we begin to smile and love and say, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. What if by us bearing their sins that God in his righteousness can purge them of sin? You were like sheep going astray is what verse 25 says in Peter. The one we're supposed to follow, this is the end, but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our soul, of your souls. When Jesus moves toward pain, our sin towards the thing that made us crucify him. That's what he bears. It opened us up a way for us to be healed, for us to no longer go astray, for us to return to God. What if that's the key for us to influence others as well? That's why we're called to this. When we refuse to retaliate or we refuse to make threats or we decide to bear their sins in our lives, what if that is what opens the door for God to heal the people he put us next to? What if it's an intercession? I have a friend um, who in the 1970s spent his whole life, you know, the decade, a little bit more than a decade, 15 years, down in the South Pacific as a missionary. And he was in this small port city. And um, a young lady came to Christ. And as they baptized her and they were talking with her, they found out that she was a kept woman, kept young lady by a captain who had come into port four or five times a year. And he, she was his mistress, one of his mistresses in the port. Married man, but had a mistress. Well, when she came to Christ and she started opening her heart to Christ, they were talking through, they were trying to talk to her about where, you know, where her heart was, where her life was, and she decided that this is inappropriate. I can't continue to do this. Well, the captain comes back to port some weeks later, 
finds out she's a baptized Christian, found out it was from this American missionary. He's an American captain, and he was mad as a hornet. And for two years, every time he'd come back to port, he'd come to the church, scream in the back. One night, he broke into their house. He was drunk. He was an alcoholic. He was drunk, and he was, had a knife, was threatening their lives. They had to call the police. It was all this really ugly air in public, in private. And two years about passed, and my friend, really great swimmer, and they would go from um, uh, island to island by boat usually, but when you come back into where he lived, there was a kind of a reef area that you couldn't take a boat in, but if you were a good swimmer, it would take you about 45 minutes to swim in, and it would take about three hours to go around the reef. So he's pulling in, he's feeling pretty good, he said, I'll just swim in. So he jumped off the boat, started swimming in, took him about 45 minutes, pretty tired, got out and to a cafe that's right off the beach, a little dirt road, and then this beach, and then this little cafe. And the people knew him there. And so he got out of the water, walked up to the thing, sit down, said, ah, oh, have a sandwich. So he's, he's, his back is toward the door, and he's sitting on one of the stools at the counter. And uh, as he got his sandwich, he's, all of a sudden he heard the door open up and slam. And as he turned to look, here is this captain coming down with fists to my friend's face. And he beat him, and he beat him, and all he remembers is that he passed out. What he didn't know was that all the people in that room, there's five or six other guys who knew him, knew of this situation because it was a small area, everybody knew about it. And uh, they grabbed the, the captain and started beating the tar out of him. These guys, they're not, you know, they just start beating him up. <laughs> and they, uh, when he started coming back to consciousness, he looked, he said, he saw them beating him. He said, stop, you guys. And he brought them out, you know, they're beating him out <laughs> the front. He finally got to them and the, the captain passes out on the dust. He's just full of dust and blood. And my friend pushed them off of him, ran in and grabbed a rag, put water on it. And he goes out and he picks up the captain's head begins to wipe his face, wipe away the dirt and wipe away the blood. And the captain's waking up and he sees this guy that he has done nothing but hate, nothing but torment to, taking care of him. And he starts to cry. Why? Why are you doing this? Why would you do this? My friend just was, you know, you mean something to me. You mean something to God. And that captain in that moment gave his life to forgiveness and the paradise that's coming to God. Why do things like that happen? I think there's something. It's like it's, it's, you see it in Stephen, the young man that's stoned to death in Acts 7. And as he's being stoned to death because he's talking about Jesus, they stone him to death. As the stones are hurling at him, he kneels down and he says, Father, the same thing, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the scripture says they, the, that the cloaks that they laid out before they stoned to show authority, they laid their feet at a man named Saul. Saul, the great persecutor. And so Stephen dies, and two chapters later, Saul is on his way to Damascus to hurt more Christians. And all of a sudden, the light flashed from heaven. He falls to the ground, 
And Jesus said, we got to talk. <laughs> and Saul became Paul, the apostle. Why did God do that? I mean, why doesn't he just do that to everybody and get on with it? Flash from him. What, what if the reason he could do it is because Stephen, instead of accusing and blaming, had the power and presence to say, Lord, forgive them. What if the receiving of the, of the stones and the rejection and the hatred and the meanness, what if Stephen bearing that in his body opened the door for God to take away the thing that threw those rocks at him? What if this is about intercessory living by understanding Christ the King in the cross? Let me say this. When you think about God's power being seen in your life, what do you think of? Miracles everywhere? Having a Midas touch so everything you touch turns to gold? Amazing business person? Amazing whatever person? Being in perfect health all the time? Is that what power looks like? Does it mean being loved and understood by all, all the time? And adored by all? Most of us have little of that, and many of us have pain and trouble, which we shouldn't be surprised by. Jesus was the one who said in John, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. How? Sovereignty can suffer. If we surveyed this room we would find wonderful people who live in difficult marriages, bear debilitating physical problems, who have kind of a sketchy career track, who live under financial pressure. Some live with insufficient funds. They have difficult working conditions or have bad bosses. A text like the gospel we just read this morning throws the gauntlet down. And here's what it says. You can do this. You can do this. God is with you. His power is perfected in weakness. Dare to trust. Dare to forgive. Dare to include others that are rejected. It may feel like crucifixion, but that only means Easter is coming. How long will you have to suffer? I have no idea. All I know is that when you lean into Christ the King, that question becomes less important. Listen to this last text, Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Who endured such opposition from sinners. Why? so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. Amen.